Hey everyone, this is Kindle from the Recording Lounge podcast, and today I've got a long-awaited episode all about how the drum sound affects our perception of feel, groove, timing, and of course, vibe. Now, in my opinion, many people wrongfully assume that recording drums to a click or quantizing drums to a click will kill the feel, definitively, right? Uh, while I do agree that quantization or hyper-editing can sometimes kill the feel, especially if it's done poorly, to dismiss just being on time in general, to me, is a bit foolish. I mean, if recording to a metronome and being tight on a click kills the feel, and you're really making that claim, you're basically saying that virtually any pop, rap, hip-hop, R&B, rock, EDM, techno, or metal song in the last 20 years has no feel, right? I mean, most things are done to a click these days, not only because it helps people stay, stay in time, but because it makes production a lot easier, going back and forth with loops or MIDI or other things like that. I mean, it, there's so many benefits to recording with a metronome, even if it's not 100% perfect on it, but it's a pretty big claim to say, like, it will definitively kill your feel. And I just don't agree with that. Um, there's a well-known YouTuber who did a video a while back about quantizing John Bonham and how, you know, as soon as he finished quantizing, I was like, oh, listen to that. There's no feel anymore. And to me, I mean, personally, I think it was kind of a sloppy edit job, if I'm being honest. But, uh, you know, it, it's also kind of an insult to John Bonham because in my mind, the way a drum beat feels, and this is something we're talking about today, is heavily influenced by the dynamics, the sort of microdynamic changes, the exact nature of the groove, how it is played, the intensity, all of those things. And none of that has anything to do with whether it's on time or not. I mean, sure, that's another element. But to make the claim that as soon as John Bonham is in time, he has no more feel, that to me is almost an insult. I actually posted a video on my Instagram about this. Uh, where I quantized by hand every single beat of that song to the click. And I played it back, back and forth, and they're both great. They both sound great. It's not that quantizing John Bonham suddenly feels terrible. Like I said, to me, that feels like an insult to John Bonham. It's like, so the only thing that makes John Bonham feel good is that he's not in time. You know what I mean? That, that's absurd to me. Uh, in the same way that, like, you're telling me that no drum machine ever has felt good. Ever. So no Michael Jackson song, no song in the 80s, you know, nothing from anybody throughout the 90s with MIDI drums or electronic. None of that ever felt good. You know what I mean? That's that's a pretty bold claim to make. So like I said, in in my opinion, I would make the argument that feel is more about what is played, how it is played, how the drums are balanced how the drum tone is, uh, how the player attacks the drums, and all the little nuances about their playing, things like ghost notes and accents and all of that stuff. Um, and again, these are all source changes. And anyone who's been a fan of this podcast for a while knows one of my hardcore mottos is the source is king. And I've got a bunch of audio examples that we're going to listen to today. We're going to talk about some of these factors and determine how the drums come across to the listener, how they feel, how they make us move. And most of the things that we are changing, if not all, are going to be source changes. The mics are going to be set up and nothing else is going to change. The drum mix is not going to change. Um, I'm not going to use different fancy preamps for this or that or EQ things differently. It's all going to be the same. And you're going to hear how drastic it can be just by how the drums are dampened, how the accents are placed within the beat. So please note, even though this episode is about perception and feel, which are both very subjective terms, I still want to do these tests as scientifically as possible. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to get the point across. So for the purposes of this, all the drum files for the first portion of these tests were done in the same room with the same mics, the same drummer in the same session, and all of them were quantized. So what I wanted to do is remove the click from that equation. I don't want the bias of, oh, this one sped up a little bit or this one slowed down. I want you to hear it exactly edited tight to the grid. And so the only thing you are hearing 
is the source changes that are happening. The way that the drummer played differently, the way they balanced themselves differently, where they placed accents, all of that stuff. Um, so the idea is to ignore the timing and simply focus on how the feel is affected by the changes we made. And finally, I'll give you a couple of examples of drum tones that I've recorded for clients in some of their songs in context to explain some of the decisions and why we did what we did and how the tones are very different from each other on purpose to accomplish a certain thing in each song, whether it was a vibe thing or a groove thing or a combination of both. So uh, let's get started. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is how the drummer's ability to self-balance will have a huge impact on how we perceive the quality of the drums, the feel, and just the overall glue of the drum sound. And this is something that great session drummers understand just inherently. They just get it. And it sounds better when they sit on a drum kit that's mic'd up. They just naturally self-balance to whatever is there. If the cymbals are a, a little bit thinner, maybe they play them a little bit harder. If the snare drum is really loud and maybe they need to play it a little bit, you know, sort of in the middle rather than hitting it so hard. Um, they just naturally do it and they just kind of do it without even thinking. And that has a huge impact on how we perceive the quality and overall balance of the drums. And you might say to yourself, oh, well, you know, you can always turn up individual mics. Yes and no, because if you're using room mics, which I am, the drums need to be balanced in those as well. You know, if you've got a weak sounding kick drum and crazy loud cymbals, it's going to come across that way in the room mics. You can't get away from it. Same thing with the overheads. If you're bashing on the cymbals and barely hitting the snare drum, your overhead mics are going to be all cymbals. You're not going to have any kit image in there at all, right? So it has a huge impact on how the drums are perceived. So in these examples, I had a session drummer, Joshua Warren from Small Thing Studios and War Drums, demonstrate different ways to self-balance. In this first example, he is trying to play all of the drums, the kick, snare, and the hi-hat at the same volume. Okay, so check it out. It does sound a little stiff, and partly that's because the hi-hat is being played very evenly with no accents and a little bit loud for the context, in my opinion. The next example is him playing the hi-hats the same volume, but the drums too weak, and listen how drastically it changes. Not great, right? It doesn't feel good to listen to. It doesn't really sound that great. It sounds wimpy. In the next example, we're going to hear the snare played way too hard, okay? Now, another way you may perceive this is that the snare and the hi-hat are fine, but the kick drum is played way too weak. This one actually feels out of time to me, but I guarantee you, these are all quantized, okay? They are edited on the grid, but it feels out of time because of how wimpy the kick is played. You'd be surprised how many drummers have this problem of having a really light foot, but they have incredibly strong hands. <laughs> so they're playing their snare and their toms really loud, but their kick drum sounds weak. So in my experience, one of the best ways to balance yourself is basically the same way that we mix drums, which is from the bottom up, meaning the kick drum is the strongest. It's closest to the floor. The floor tom is hit nice and strong. The snare is hit nice and strong. 
The rack tom is hit strong, but maybe not as hard as the snare or the floor tom. The hi-hat is hit next, and the cymbals are hit the lightest, okay? So from the floor up, balancing yourself that way, to me, provides an incredibly balanced and great-sounding recording. Here's what that sounds like. So without changing any of the drum mix, let's compare the difference between bottom-up balance and even. Here's bottom-up. Even. Bottom-up. Even. So those both feel very different. The bottom-up balance feels great, and the even one feels a lot more robotic. But again, these are both quantized at 85 BPM. All you're hearing is a difference in balance, right? But if we solo up the room mics, you can hear that bottom-up has a better balance even in the room. So it's not just a better balance in the close mics, it's better balance on all mics. Check it out. Let's do that again, bottom-up to even. Here we go. And just for fun, let's hear how bad it sounds when the snare drum is played too weak in the room mics. versus bottom-up. The difference is really night and day. I mean, the one that was played bottom-up balanced sounds like a groove. It sounds like drums, right? It has feel. You can really feel the push and pull between the kick, the snare, and the hi-hat. But the one where the snare drum was played really wimpy it feels terrible. It doesn't really feel groovy at all because that balance is messing with our brain. We're used to hearing grooves in Finnish songs, in Finnish mixes of our favorite bands. We've been hearing it for 50 years, you know what I mean? Of great drummers having grooves. Again, in finished, released songs and at shows, right? Like, we're used to a certain type of balance, whether we want to admit it or not. It's something that we've kind of evolved over the years. Sure, if you go back through the history of drums from, you know, jazz all the way up through the 50s and 60s and 70s, yes, drum sounds have changed. But there is something to be said for how the balance of the player will drastically affect what the mics hear and how much ability we have to mix the, the source tracks, right? Like... In the track that's balanced from the bottom up, we actually have low end and low mids and highs that we can play with on that room mic. But on the other one, uh, where the snare drum was played really weak, there's not a whole lot we can do to bring that snare drum out of the room mic and make it sound like he magically played it harder. On the even track, where it seems like the hi-hats are too loud, we're probably going to have to use some sort of de or multi-band EQ to balance out the hi-hats with the rest of the drums, okay? So I hope this first set of examples provides proof that the drummer's ability to self-balance has a drastic effect on not only how good the recording sounds, but how much we have to work with as a mixer, but just how it feels, how the groove feels, how the groove comes across to us as a listener. So the next set of examples deals with accents and how the nuances of how a drummer accents the hi-hat or the snare or the kick or whatever have a drastic impact on how we perceive groove. 
Now, I thought of a lot of different ways of doing this, but it was the easiest, most direct example by just varying the hi-hat, okay? It's simple to understand. You know exactly what you're listening for, not like changes to kick and snare and hi-hat. So all we're going to be doing is changing how he plays the hi-hat. So in this first example, he's going to be playing that same beat all the way, um, totally even, even eighth notes on the hi-hat, and then he's going to go to ride. Check it out. In this next example, he's going to be doing downbeat accents. So, ga, da, 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 on hi-hat and then on ride. So check out how the feel changes from doing this. So yeah, now he's accenting on the hi-hat every downbeat and accenting on the ride cymbal with the bell. And it drastically impacts how we perceive the groove. Later, we'll play all of these back-to-back -back so you can hear the differences, but it makes a huge difference. In the next example, he's going to flip it and do upbeat accents. Check it out. And just as a bit of a wild card, I told him to give me an example where he's playing offbeat accents that aren't on a predictable downbeat or upbeat. Something a little, just a little bit more offset kind of pattern. Check that out. Okay, that has its own feel as well. So what I'm going to do is we're going to start with just the hi-hat pattern, not the ride pattern, and I'm going to do two bars of each. I'm going to play them back to back, and you're going to notice how that feel changes with each one. So I'm going to play that one more time. Again, we're playing even, then downbeat accents, upbeat accents, and then offset accents. Again, all of these have the exact same beat, the same tempo, the same mics, the same mix. The only thing that has changed is where those accents are placed. And all four of those feel very different from each other. And the keyword here is different. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm saying it's the difference between a drummer playing a beat and a drummer playing music, right? Whatever the song calls for, a skilled drummer will listen to the feel of the music. What does that need to be? And they will adapt. They'll adjust where they place their accents, how hard they hit, how they balance themselves. They'll adjust that sort of thing. But this hopefully will prove my point that how a drummer accents, even though it's just on the hi-hat, can have a drastic impact on how the listener moves. I found myself you know, moving my head in different ways listening to each of those grooves. 
the even one is a bit more sort of hypnotic and repetitive, which can be really cool in certain situations. The downbeat accent one feels like rock and roll, right? Like it feels real heavy on the on the ones, like bah, bah, bah. And the upbeat accent one feels a bit more groovy and kind of funky, almost like something that Steve Jordan would play. If you check out the John Mayer song, I Don't Trust Myself with Loving You, Steve Jordan is playing that beat. It's a very common beat for him to play because it feels fun. It's got this cool upbeat thing, almost like a hip-hop kind of groove, where the the hi-hat is really only heard sort of in between the beats. Because even though the hi-hat is playing bop, 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 it's being accented on the upbeats. So boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop. And of course, in isolation, that sounds goofy. But another reason this type of groove has a nice motion to it is this is actually a really common side effect of drum bus compression. Because as those kick and snare hits push into the drum bus compressor, the entire drum mix dips down. And in between those drum hits, what is there? A hi-hat, an upbeat accent. So that motion of a compressor, that bum, 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 from, from attacking and releasing, will actually create this kind of a groove. So it's actually more common of a field than maybe you realize, but anytime when a drummer is playing just a straight beat that is then compressed, you get that sort of thing. To demonstrate that, I'm gonna take the even feel where he's not accenting anything and compress those drums a little bit more so that you can hear what I'm talking about. So here's the even drums without that bus compression. And with. Without. And with. So I know it's sort of a rough example, but hopefully it proves the point that the way that drum bus is pumping, those hi-hats come up in between the kick and snare hits. And that's just gonna happen with this type of bus compression, especially when the release is in time and it's quick. Uh, if the release is slower, then the compressor will stay compressed for longer, and so it won't necessarily uh, bring up those hi-hats as quickly, and it won't feel quite as pumpy, but you know, as you slow down the release, it starts to change the feel drastically. In fact, I think the release is one of the most important controls for feel, and the attack control is one of the most important controls for how the attack sounds. Now, I should also mention, maybe that is not the feel that you want. And you should realize that compressing your drum bus too heavily will enhance that feel. And if you want the drums to feel more even or more downbeat accent, you might not want to go with a bunch of bus compression on your drums because it will change the feel of the drums. It'll change the balance. But if you're trying to enhance that on an already kind of upbeaty groove, you probably want to do bus compression because it adds a really cool thing, right? If the groove is definitively downbeat accents on the hi-hat, then doing this kind of bus compression might actually even it out. Now, this is kind of the classic way that a lot of rock drummers play. They play with accented hi-hats. If you watch a lot of the classic rock drummers play, they play with a lot of downbeat accents, you know, bam, bam. And so once those drums are recorded and compressed, it actually sounds a bit more even than that. Now, of course, when you hit a hi-hat harder, it sounds different. So it's not just, you know, it's not that the compressor is magically going to make it sound like it was played quieter, but it will even it out volume-wise. And so a lot of times in rock songs, what we end up with is this really glued, even drum sound, but it was actually played a bit more dynamic and accented than what we hear on the record, if that makes sense. Now again, this can be cool. It can be a cool thing, but it might not be what you want it to do. So I just wanted to hopefully show you through these examples that even something as simple as a change of the hi-hat accent can drastically affect how the groove feels to us, how we move our heads, regardless of timing regardless of if it is played to a click or not, or if it's quantized or any of that. It's just about the balance and the dynamics and how it is played. So in this next set of examples, we're gonna be talking about how the length of the note, meaning how open the drum is tuned, how long it sustains, 
how that will affect the groove and the feel. Okay, this is something that I think hip hop producers and pop producers think about very regularly, especially if they're working with, you know, sample drums, drum machines, program drums, things like that, because you're going through and you're thinking, okay, I need a real short punchy kick or I need a big deep 808 that has some sustain. It's just part of the job when you're dealing with that sort of thing. But I think that a lot of rock producers or country or metal or whoever working with live drums, they don't think about this enough. They really don't. It's like, I'll see people put tape and stuff all over their drums and that's just their go-to. It's like, we didn't even discuss how that fits into the tempo of about, of about what we're going to do, right? You're just trying to do that to get rid of annoying rings and stuff. It's like, I get that, but it's going to impact how it feels. So in these, these next examples, I played the drums. I'm not a great drummer, but I did time align everything. Uh, so again, still 85 BPM. The beat itself is a little bit different. I wanted to showcase sort of a long kick and a short kick. But in these examples, I'm going to play you different types of dampening on the kick and the snare to show you how that can affect how something feels. So in this first example, you're just going to hear the drum sort of medium dampened, right? This is like one uh, moon gel dampening pad on the snare and a little bit of a pillow in the kick drum, just sort of your standard drum beat. So listen to what happens when we put more dampening on the kick drum and take off the dampening on the snare. So we have a short kick and a long snare. And this is how it feels when you have a short kick and a short snare. Now this is what happens when we remove the dampening from the kick drum and keep the dampening on the snare. So now we have long kick, short snare. And this is with no dampening on the kick or the snare. So now it's long kick and long snare. So all of these feel slightly different from each other and they evoke certain genres or vibes or, you know, various things when I hear them. I'm going to play them back in order. I'm just going to do two bars of each one after the other. So we're going to start with our sort of medium standard tune, lightly dampened, and then just go through them all in order again. And you'll hear it's very drastically different. Make sure that you're listening on good speakers to really get the fullness of that kick drum to come through. Once again, I'm not saying any of these is better or worse, right or wrong. I'm just saying it'll affect how it feels. When the kick drum is long and the snare is short, to me that evokes feelings of like more of a hip hop beat, like an 808 kick and then a clap almost, right? It feels kind of like heavy on the one. Whereas when the kick is short and tight and the snare is ringy, that just kind of sounds like standard rock kit to me, right? A more ringy rock and roll snare with a tight punchy kick drum. And again, that's not something you can really fake later. Now, I will say, I would rather record the kit a little bit ringier than I think I need because it's easier to remove that stuff with gates, EQ, transient designers than trying to get it back. Because really, your only course of action at that point is to add samples or reverb or do some other tricky things to try to make it sound like these drums were tuned more open. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I think people don't do that is because they don't know how to tune drums. Now, 
tuning drums open is much harder and requires a lot more attention to detail. And it's more annoying because as a drummer plays, a drummer will go out of tune. So you have to make sure the drum head is well broken in. It's not like brand new out of the package, but it's been played on a little bit. It's stretched out and you got to tune the lugs to a point where they're all relatively even. The kick drum, the toms, the snare, all that stuff, it can be really challenging to do, especially if the key of the song conflicts with the key or the tonality of the ring. And that's something that I work very hard at when recording drums. We'll find the general area that fits the vibe. Like if we say we need a high tune snare or a low tune snare, we need something like that for vibe purposes. And then we decide, okay, we don't want the drums to be super dead. We do want them to have some ring. We want them to have that sort of natural tone. Like let's say we're doing a country song or a rock song that needs sort of that natural drum tone. Um, from there, you just find a pitch that works in the key. It doesn't have to be, you know, always the one of the key or the four or the five. Sometimes it's the third. But again, you just got to be careful and listen in context and make sure that whatever that ring is, it's not like, you know, the flat two or the flat five or something that's really going to stick out in an offensive way in the key. So often it's going to be the one, the four, the five, sometimes the three, sometimes the major seven or the flat seven, uh, sometimes the six. It just kind of depends. You have a lot of room to, wig to wiggle around that tuning. You just try to find generally the closest note that you think sounds good in context and tune the drum to that. So you get the sort of general area that you like. You know it's going to work in the key as well. Toms, you kind of do the same thing. Again, you only really have to focus on this a lot when you're letting things ring. If everything is dampened really tightly and the vibe of the drums needs to be tight, almost like a Wolfpack kind of thing, like a real tight, funky kit sound, you don't have to worry so much about the pitch of the drum. It doesn't really cause any problems. But when you leave a drum undampened, you get all these upper mid-range harmonics in the 500, 600, 700, 1K area that really are going to be heard. They're going to compete with vocals and guitars and all this. And at first, that seems like a bad thing. But if you tune them in key, then they'll sort of melt into the track and you don't really notice them. But the snare has a lot more life. It's a little more interesting and it has more natural decay. So you're not always feeling like you got to add reverb to make the drum sound like it fills up the beat, if that makes sense. So basically what I'm trying to get at is I tend to look at drum sounds in terms of the length of the note if it were written out, right? If somebody were writing out the drum part on sheet music, how might the drum length be? Would it be a half note or a quarter note or an eighth note, whole note? Um, and that is all totally dependent on the song. Now, one final thing about drum length and how you can affect it at the source. And this is something that drummers actually debate a lot, but they don't necessarily debate the side that I'm taking. And that is, do you bury your kick drum beater or not? Okay, so what I mean by that is some drummers, when they hit the kick drum, they will leave the beater in the head. That's what we call burying the beater. The other technique is to bounce the beater. So you hit the drum and the beater bounces off, okay? And drummers will debate that and they'll debate it in terms of like a feel thing or whatever's comfortable. Some drummers will say, you know, whatever the song calls for, blah, blah, blah. Now, in my experience in the studio world, it almost always sounds better to bounce. If I need the kick drum to be shorter, I will dampen it more. But if you bury the beater, you'll almost always kill the sustain and tone of your kick drum. Now, a lot of people incorrectly but understandably assume that a lot of the resonance of a drum comes from the resonant head. After all, it is called the resonant head, right? But that's not where a lot of the actual low fundamental tone comes from. Much of that comes from the batter head itself, which is the head that you hit. So if you test this for yourself, if you put a big towel over your snare drum or your floor tom, you're not going to have any tone left. It's just going to be a dead, like, you know, just a dead flat sound with no low end. Um, it's just going to sound like you put a towel over your drum, you know. So when you bury the beater on your kick drum, it does the same thing. It kills all the low end. 
Now, some people would argue that for things like metal, they want to bury the beater because they want a purposely very short kick with not a whole lot of resonance. But again, I would rather tackle that with dampening, putting another pillow in there or putting some tape on it or putting, you know, some towels or something inside of the bass drum to cut down the sustain. I don't really think that the answer is to bury the beater into the head and leave it there. I mean, if you try this on a drum, on a tom or on a snare, it sounds bad. I mean, it it, it does. So I know this is just my opinion. I know a lot of drummers out there will probably disagree with me. Um, but try it for yourself, right? Compare the tone. I made an example to show you. Um, this is what happens when you bury your beater in the kick drum versus let it ring. Make sure to listen to this on good speakers because the resonance is very low. Now, again, like I've said in some of these other parts, I would rather have a kick drum that was a little bit too long because then I could use gates or transient designers or whatever. I actually have something to mold, right? But if it's short and I needed a little bit more resonance uh, and the beater has been buried and the kick drum is just like, bop, like, and it's, it's done, I can't do anything about that. I'd have to use samples to increase the length and resonance of that kick. Um, now I could probably try to use some sort of subharmonic, you know, like uh, the Brainworks subfilter plugin or, or R-Bass or something like that, but I don't really want to do that. So in this example, you're going to hear uh, a short little kick pattern played buried and then open, buried and then open again. Check it out. One more time. As you hopefully can tell, when you bury the beater, the tone is very short and kind of choked sounding. When you bounce, the tone is open and it rings. Now you also might have noticed when you bury the beater, generally speaking, the pitch of the drum squeezes upward a little bit, and I don't like that. So if you're specifically looking for a super tight, short kick drum sound, okay, burying the beater is not the worst thing in the world, right? You'll be able to get a great sound. However, where this becomes a problem is if you're having that drummer who is used to burying the beater trying to get a more open, breathy, long kick drum sound those drummers are going to struggle to change that muscle memory in the moment. Really, only the most skilled session drummers that I work with can do that. You know, you can ask them, hey, can you bury the beater this entire song? And they will. Or you can ask them, hey, you need to bounce the beater this entire song, and they will. But not every drummer can do that. You know, it's, it's muscle memory. These drummers learn to play their drum a certain way. And so to try to pull that out of a drummer just sort of on the spot is not as easy as you think. So personally, because you can get both results with bouncing and proper dampening, I am always an advocate for bouncing. To me, it's just a more versatile habit to get into. Um, also, I mean, just logically speaking, like why would you bury the stick into a drum? You don't, right? You let it bounce because you want the drum to ring and resonate. So why would you do it on kick drum? You know, it, it's... If we want our tom shorter or our snare shorter, we put tape on it or moon gels or paper towels or whatever. We can do the same on kick drum. You know what I mean? We can make them real short. But anyway, drummers, I'm sorry out there if you disagree. Please don't send me angry emails trying to debate me on this. <laughs> this is just my opinion uh, from my experience in the studio. To me, it almost always sounds better. So just wanted to bring that up. Now, for this next set of examples, I'm going to show you some various drum sounds in context of some music, so you can hear why we made the decisions that we made. Now, this first set of examples was uh, lent to us by Dave Tate, also a podcast listener. I recorded these drums for a project that he's working on, and uh, this particular track is called Ancestor. And in this track, we used a really long kick drum coupled with a cross stick on the snare and a bit of a shorter sound. Uh, and when the, when the snare does come in, it's tuned pretty tightly. And that feel worked really well for this track, as opposed to the opposite, a tight kick and a ringy snare. So we went with a wide open kick drum, really open, and a short snare. 
Also, thought I'd just throw it out there. This is not mixed. This is not the final track. Uh, this is just the drums and the acoustic. The drums just have a rough mix with a little bit of drum bus compression. Just wanted to clarify that. Check it out. Now, here's another example from that same project where we used a sort of medium-long kick, but a much longer snare. For this, we're using a brush on the snare, and the snare wires are really loose, so the snare has a lot of length. Um, so it's not quite as long of a kick as what you just heard, but it's a much longer snare sound. So this next example actually does have vocals and the rest of the band, and it uses a combination of lots of different drum sounds. Very short, overdubbed, kind of dead tom sounds going as well as some electronic drum sounds, some claps. But then when the verse comes in, we go back to like a normal sort of medium length kit where the kick is medium short and the snare is medium short, but nothing is super tight. Um, it's just a great sound overall, but it's a combination of a lot of different sounds. Another reason I wanted to use this as an example is because this was played by a session drummer I use a lot, and he played a really interesting hi-hat groove. And overall, the groove in the second verse is just kind of cool. There's a little gap in there, and the hi-hat accents in strange spots, but it feels great. Now this next example is a short kick and a short snare. This is going for more of like a 60s kind of soul Motown thing. The toms are tuned a little bit higher and more open, and you're getting some of the length from reverb, but not from the drums themselves, and that's a different sound as well. Another reason I wanted to use this as an example is because the kick drum on this is very compact. Unlike the last track, which is a more modern style production, this one is going for a little bit more of a retro thing and having a smaller kick drum overall, I mean, it was literally a smaller drum, but just smaller in frequency, you know, higher pitch than a modern kick and quieter, it really lends itself to that more sort of retro sound. Also, notice how evenly the ride cymbal is played on purpose.
Now, for the final example, um, this is very indicative of a lot of rock, country, uh, alternative, metal, punk, and a whole lot of other genres. And generally, the move for that is a tight, short, punchy, somewhat clicky kick with a longer, more open, roomy snare sound. This is a really common sound for those types of genres, and it works really well. Um, it keeps the low end tight and focused, but has a really strong backbeat that kind of explodes and constantly sounds like hard hitting. Um, so check this out. As I said, that type of drum sound is very common across a lot of different genres. And part of that sound comes from aggressive playing. It comes from very often buried beater on the kick drum and bright, loud, aggressive snare drums. But another part of that modern aggressive rock sound comes from compression. Not only compression on individual channels, but also on the drum bus, very often on room mics, and very often we'll have like a parallel crushed bus that is sent from the entire drum mix. And that's blended in as well. And so you get this aggressive pumping from the room mics and you get this explosive snare sound. It's a really common thing. Not only that, but in a lot of modern rock and metal and punk, you'll have the use of samples blended in to augment and heighten that aggressiveness and sort of like perfection even more. Now, I bring this up as an example of how certain drum sounds are not really going to sound right until they've been processed or mixed. You know, the sound of modern music has evolved around compression. It's kind of just a matter of fact. So you won't always be able to get those types of sounds in the room at the source, right? It's not going to necessarily sound right until you crush the room mics, do drum bus compression, add parallel compression, maybe blend in some samples, right? Like, it's just something we have to admit to ourselves. Now, the whole reason I wanted to show you all of these examples from different tracks is to really just say none of them are right or wrong. It's all about what is right for the particular groove, the particular drummer, the particular vibe and feel of the track. And that's something that I hope all of you think about when you're recording drums. How long do these drums need to be? Are we getting decay from room sound, from added reverb on purpose, like in the case of the motown -y song? Part of the vibe was that sort of 60s thing, so we put spring reverb on the snare, and it was part of the sound, right? But we didn't need to have an open-tuned snare to get that sound. That would be probably inappropriate for that track, right? Now, the higher-tuned and more open toms is very sort of indicative of, like, that old jazz-style kit with the smaller toms, you know, and we used a vintage kit for that session, so, you know, it was very period-appropriate. I guess what I'm bringing up all this stuff for is just to say, you gotta think about it. It will drastically affect how the feel is perceived, how the vibe is perceived, and you can't just dampen stuff or tune stuff high or low just because it makes it easier to record or it sounds good in isolation. As we all know, it's not really about what it sounds like in solo. It's all about does it fit the vibe of the track and how does it affect the groove and the feel of the track, right? So you have to consider both of those things. Now, personally, I like to start with vibe. I like to start with, all right, are we looking for a deep sound on the kick drum or a punchy sound? Are we looking for, you know, a, a bright, aggressive snare or a fatter snare? Uh, and once you kind of get that territory, from there you can you can refine and decide, all right, is this a slow song, a fast song? Do we need the snare to have some length? Do we need it to be really short? Um, what's going to work in this track the best? 
And then you have to make the decision of, okay, if it is a longer snare sound, what note are we going to tune it to? And you have to work and spend time and tune that snare so that it does fit in key and doesn't sound offensive. Another thing to keep in mind is how this all affects the rest of the band. If you're recording a song with a you know drummer, bass player, and keyboard player in the room together, you got a rhythm section going, and the drums are tuned really long, I feel like the other players will naturally kind of adapt to that and try to also play long and not take up too much room because the drums are also taking a, bu- a bunch of room. Versus if the kick drum is short and the snare is short, the bass player might feel like, oh, I've got a little more room to dance around this beat and, and move around throughout the bar. And maybe that's what you want. Maybe that's not what you want, right? So there's something to be said about how all of it affects all of it, <laughs> right? Like it all matters. And the context is really what it comes down to. Does it work in context of the track? Does it accomplish the vibe? And does it accomplish the groove? Because how the drums sound will drastically affect everything else, really. Um, And it will impact how the other players perceive the groove, the feel, the weight of the one and three versus the two and four. It'll, It'll impact everything, right? So next time you're recording drums, think a little bit more about this, okay? I challenge you to think just a little bit more about where you're getting the length, the punch, how the accents are handled by either the snare or the hi-hat or the kick, uh, how the drummer's balance is, and how all of that is working together. And I will admit, working with really talented session players, I don't have to worry about most of this stuff because they just kind of instantly get it. You know, when we pull up a new track and they say, all right, what kind of snare are we thinking? And we'll listen to the song and we'll discuss together. And generally, we both will agree, okay, this one needs a little bit of a short, tight snare. This one needs a long snare, whatever. And then we'll put it up. We'll try it out. And they naturally adapt to the groove of, you know, the rest of the band or of the guide track or whatever. And it seems like they just know where to put the accents, when to do upbeat accents, when to do downbeat accents, when to not accent at all, when to not play the hi-hat at all, you know? These are some of the things that I have learned from working with really skilled drummers and really skilled bass players and how their brain works around a beat and how they balance themselves to affect the groove. So I hope this podcast was interesting. I hope it was helpful. I hope it gave you some things to think about that maybe you haven't before. If you have any questions or comments, please send them my way at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. If you have a a podcast idea or suggestion for an episode, please just send me an email or fill out the form on my website. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash recording lounge. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash recording lounge. You can sign up and you will be charged every time I come out with an episode rather than like a monthly fee. You also get access to a private RSS feed with quick tips available only to Patreon supporters. Also, special thanks to the artists that let me use little snippets of their songs uh, for these examples, Dave Tate, Mark Gibson, Emma Spears, and the Brothers Moore. Thank you so much for letting me use these. And uh, thanks to Joshua Warren for the examples early on. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening.